Welcome! I'm Roxanne Spring, your personal midwife after hours, celebrating and promoting wisdom and power in pregnancy, birth, and beyond. Welcome to Midwife After Hours. I'm your host, Roxanne Spring, and we are here with episode two. I'm excited to have the opportunity to interview a dear friend and a fellow birth professional, Shannon Mitchell. She is a licensed midwife. Her practice is Exhale Birth Services. Shannon has been a birth professional for over 20 years. She began as a lactation consultant went on to become a childbirth educator and a doula, and for the last three years, she's been our local midwife. Shannon also has a bachelor's in history. She took that and used it to take a deep dive into researching cesarean birth. She served on the ICANN board, that's the International Cesarean Awareness Network. And in 2012, she attended the vaginal birth after cesarean council meeting and fearlessly and fiercely addressed the failure of that council to address informed consent for women seeking a vaginal birth after cesarean. She also serves on additional professional boards, Breach Without Borders and Washington Alliance for Responsible Midwifery. It is my pleasure to introduce Shannon Mitchell. It sounds so much more impressive than it really is <laughs> uh, when you're a person. It has to, like, you know, you, you never stop and look back at what you're doing. You look at what you're doing now. Mm, but yeah, that it was built on what you did back then. It really was. Yeah. I too, I was. Yeah, exactly. So one of the things that I really would love to start with, unless you have some burning thing that you want to begin with. I'm totally good with starting wherever you are. Okay. <laughs> is I want to know, how did you discover midwifery? Um, so interestingly enough for me, it's kind of ironic. Um, I went to an OBGYN with my second pregnancy. And when I was going to him, I didn't realize that, that these nurses that I saw every single week were actually CNMs. I had no idea. So when I went to have my third baby, I was on the internet and I was on AOL, which tells you how old I am. And I was talking to all these moms who were talking about giving birth in their bathtubs. And I was like, wow, who are these crazies? And I was like, really intensely interested in how they were just choosing to go in a completely different direction because I had never even seen examples of that other than like, you know, general hospital in the middle of the winter or something, you know, it was not a thing for me. So I started to look at it and these women talking and I realized that, that the nurses that I was seeing every week for my third pregnancy were also CNMs. And my CNMs, I never even saw an OB with the third one. And my CNMs were the people who every week reminded me that things were beautiful and things were going well. And these certified nurse midwives um, were really a light in my world at a time where I thought I was going to have a lot of things very different. And it was really nice to just be treated like everything was completely normal. My baby was doing beautifully and they would talk to me about my baby and it was just a really beautiful, different experience than when I'd had even the first or second time. Um, and then when th I started to have my fourth baby, I was like, you know what? I really don't like having IVs. I really don't like having this or that. And I just started looking at it. I was like, I think I'm going to try out a home birth midwife. And that's, I used a licensed midwife in Florida. Mm -hmm. And I, that's where I went from there. Mm, that's awesome. So that was what year then? What year started that journey? Um, so the CNMs were in 1991 that I didn't know. The mm. 1998 was my third child. And then in 2000, I chose a home birth midwife for okay. my, my fourth birth. And then when did that light of discovery come on and you were like, this is what I have to do? Okay, so it's not fair to ask me that question because I'm the only midwife I know that has like a personal policy of I never wanted to grow up to be a midwife. I was a doula. I was an advocate. I was a childbirth educator. I was helping women to have healthier births. And I never 
decided to turn a corner as much as women just started asking me to come to their births. They started asking me to support them. They started asking if I would be there when they were having their babies. And it was like one morning I woke up and uh, a friend of mine was having a birth that was, uh, she asked me to come. It was a very intense situation when I did go. And afterwards, I just got this feeling like if I'm going to keep going to births with women and helping them to find their autonomy, find their strength, find their beauty in birth and really be able to do this naturally and do it well, then I needed more skills. So that was 2011. 2011. Okay. How, how has it changed your image of what it means to be midwife from your vantage point now? Um, well, I've been licensed for a few years. So the biggest thing that changed for me was there's that first takeoff to where when you finish school, you finish your training, you finish everything where it's like, okay, I have all these official things, but does that change you as a person? And in the beginning it does, because at first you're looking at it and you're going, okay, what do I need to do for this or that, or this that has to do with paperwork and licensure and all these other things. And then you have to reset and go back to why am I actually here? Mm. And this year for me, 2020 to 2021 has been about reminding myself of why I'm actually doing this Mm. and really focusing on the idea that women have autonomy, they have choice, they have power, Mm -hmm. they deserve to use it, they deserve to have choices and to really look at the bigger picture. And as a provider, my job is to facilitate that for them Mm -hmm. and to help everybody be in a better place, you know, whether that means health-wise, whether or not that means we need more of medical or less of medical, but it's it's been an interesting year for me mm. to go through that journey of, of figuring out where I really feel that um, my strengths lie with serving women. That's awesome. It is an incredible journey. It, it really is. My intention on this program is to answer a lot of questions that everyone out there could have. And as you listen to, I went to, I want to be able to bring forth some of the mysteries of midwifery. Do you think there's any mystery in midwifery that you would like to, myth or mystery that you would like to dispel or enlighten upon? So I had um, a couple last year who, honestly, you know, oftentimes we get into these relationships where either one partner or the other really wants a home birth or really wants a certain thing with birth and the other partner may be along for the ride is the best way to put it. (laughs) And I had a situation come up where, amazingly enough to me, where we actually had to transfer to a hospital situation um, for a baby that wasn't growing enough. And it was really fascinating to me to be able to be in a place where I could watch the development of these two parents and watch how they came through all of that, but also watching it from the perspective of the spouse who wasn't as on board in the beginning, seeing how midwifery care actually to him became to mean something very different. It was no longer this thing that we're doing out in, you know, in our home by ourselves. It was my midwife helps us to figure out if we actually need more, if we need medical care, that midwives are the arbiter of normal And we're not doing things to, we're not trying to take on super uber risks. What we're trying to do is return even, you know, pregnancies that aren't so normal back to as normal as possible. And it was so nice to see that through the eyes of somebody who maybe in the beginning was a little bit like, yeah, maybe I'm doing this, but wasn't on board. And by the end was really fully on board with the idea that his midwife, and I became his midwife. That was the coolest part is like, I became his midwife. Um, and I felt like that journey was really just amazing. Indeed, indeed. So the idea that there could be differences of opinion between the husband and the wife is been one that I've experienced as well. Um, and so who gets honored in that? Yeah. So I always emphasize to my, my clients that we are building a family. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not about... Um, it's, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to say on the radio, but it's not about no vagina, no vote. And it's also not about being completely submissive to what your, your, your husband or your partner wants. 
it's about finding the way to have a child together while honoring both of you and saying, if you have fears, let's talk about what those are. If you have confidences, let's talk about how to share those. But ultimately, decision-making should be done by the both of you in a way that helps you to understand that this baby is an amazing thing that you've done together. And one of the things I tell all of my clients is if you're having problems with making those decisions or fully trusting a decision your partner's making, I will tell them, okay, every day I want you to look at them and look them straight in the eyes and say, I love you and I trust you. Don't say anything else. Don't argue. Just look at each other and say, I love you and I trust you. And spend 30 seconds just looking into each other's eyes. And I do that not because it's an artificial thing, but because if you say that often enough, you actually start to train your brain to look at the person and say, when you see them, your brain actually starts to believe, I love you and I trust you. So therefore, when it comes to a decision like, should we have a home birth? Should we go to the hospital? Should we have a transport? What is going on? You know, do we trust that our baby's in the best hands or the best situation? We can look at each other and we instantly feel that we are the team, that, you know, the two partners are the team. Dad and mom are looking at each other going... We are the ones who make the decision and we love each other. We trust one another and it helps to build those bonds to make better decisions. Yeah, because if indeed it's just the first of a whole lifetime of decisions that are being made. (laughs) So, you know, it may not be the first decision, but they're navigating, navigating each other's beliefs and finding a way to be supportive of each other's beliefs is just part of what you do when you're in a relationship. It really is. And sometimes you don't know what you believe until you're faced with a situation that makes you go have those really strong opinions or really strong feelings. Mm -hmm. And you're suddenly like, okay, I'm no longer comfortable. And sometimes it's something where gradually you come to believe something because you every week or every month you see your midwife, you talk to her, you ask her the questions and you gradually build into that relationship. Mm -hmm. It's not something where we even though we do have clients come to care kind of late sometimes, most of the time I've known these people for, you know, six to nine months. We've had plenty of time to have good conversations about everything from whether or not their dog is appropriately trained, or <laughs> whether or not they're refining their mortgage. You know, It's not just about the, the pregnancy. It's about the people. And when I tell clients that I spend an hour to an hour and a half with them, it's about spending that time with them to build relationship, to build trust. Yeah, the trust is just a component of it that is actually not even really necessarily nurtured in some of the other mainstream medical um, partnerships because you actually don't have much time at all to engage with them. And that is something that could be like a missing uh, for many people because midwifery uh, is I've talked about and I'm sure we'll all be talking about it. How is midwifery not the same in terms of if you're getting a midwife, okay, you described one thing. That's really a very distinguishing thing, and we need to make sure that that is heard. But some people out there might go, an hour and a half? I don't know that I would have an hour and a half. And so there's that aspect of it is the the commitment of time for that relationship. But what are some of the other things that you think are distinctively different about having a midwife? Um, We take the time to ask our clients how they feel. Mm -hmm. We take the time to get consent. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is always ideal. I I do tell everybody that not everyone is 100% at everything. So we do have to remember that every midwife is slightly different as well. But, you know, we take the time to talk to you, like, like, are you comfortable with this? Um, you know, and if we did this thing or we, we asked to do this procedure, you know, are you really, are we getting informed consent? Are we giving them pros and cons and choices? And sometimes the choice is to not do that thing. And I feel like that's a big piece of it is that, you know, when we use the word holistic, people, you know, have their own impressions of what holistic is. But what really we're doing is looking at mind, body, soul, and the clinical aspects. When you blatantly when we go in and we're like, I need my pap smear. And your doctor says, okay. And you get up and you do, you know, a vaginal exam and, you know, they basically take down your medical history and then you walk away. 
that's not the same thing as when even when a midwife does a pap smear, it's something where they usually will talk to you about it. You know, what are your risk factors? You know, what are things that you might want to change with lifestyle? What are things you might want to, you know, consider, you know, nutritionally to help support your immune system to keep away things? There's like a variety of things that we discuss from a bigger perspective. And I think that, like you said, sometimes you don't get time enough to discuss those in some providers' offices. And in other providers, it's, we, you know, with midwives, I feel like oftentimes we want to have the whole conversation. We want to have the conversation that places not the appointment in your life, but the whatever's going on health-wise in your life. We want to know what the life context for it is. For some women, you're having your first baby and you don't even know what questions to ask. For some women, you're having your seventh baby and this pregnancy feels very, very different from every other one. And, or, you know, you feel a bit overwhelmed because there's six other people at home going, hey, mom. Um, Some women have experienced losses in the past. And while they call up to a provider, they want to go see somebody and they're like, we'll see you at 13 weeks. And that mom's like, that's way too far away from me. And I think midwives usually take that into account. And we look at the person and say, what do you need? Mm -hmm. That is that. Thank you. That I like that. And what things do we need to talk about that would be the same about the care? Because there's aspects of care that we want to know is going to be the same. And so what would that be? Well, we all get the same emergency training if, for the most part. We get things like neonatal resuscitation, CPR. Um, you know, I carry medications that are anti-hemorrhagics. Um, there's meaning. Meaning, yeah. I was going to say <laughs> there, there's certain levels of bleeding that we don't want to tolerate. And um, we have to make sure that we're medically checking those. Um, and so we give someone a, a drug to help them stop bleeding if that's too much. Um And we check clinically, we check your blood pressure and your pulse, and we listen to your baby's heartbeat. And all of those things are are relatively the same. In fact, strangely enough, most people aren't aware that electronic fetal monitoring that you do in the hospital, where it's the big bandy straps that everybody puts on. um, Statistically, in studies, they show that just listening with a Doppler intermittently is actually just as effective, if not more effective, and you have fewer cesareans and fewer... Uh, surgical necessities and fewer inductions when you're using a Doppler. So I don't know if that makes us the standard of care or (laughs) what happens, but it does mean that we, we still are looking for those things. We're watching out, like I said, for a baby's growth. Are they growing normally? We're measuring the belly and we're feeling the belly and seeing what your position your baby's in. We're still watching for those clinical things while making sure the rest of you is taken care of. The same. Yeah. yeah, it's important that those things are, are known. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's true. If you were to say that there's one kind of big mission that you have, what's that bigger mission? So I should also probably back up for just a second and say we also do blood work. People right, are aren't aware right. that midwives do blood work. We actually monitor that as well. Okay. As well as as yeah. well as people get ultrasounds as well. Oh yes, as, yes, yes. We schedule I mean, all of those fun things. Like all of the things, I think that. Correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the distinguishing features is that you talk about the information that they give you, right? And you yes. talk about the fact that that's still something you can choose, or not. Right. Exactly. Um, informed consent all the way. So, what is my bigger mission? It would probably be that. Um, my bigger mission is always that, um, for me at the heart of things is that, uh, my own pregnancies, my own situation, and then moving forward and the organizations like I can and stuff that I've worked with, what is largely lacking in professional care of healthcare of any kind. And that can be anyone is that people aren't really adequately informed about pros, cons, risks, benefits, and then given the choice, do you want to do this? And in some situations for women, that puts us in the position of feeling more like we're showing up for the ride at the circus, you know, the fair, where we're being put on the Ferris wheel that goes around and around, but we're not actually choosing to ever buy the ticket. And it feels like for many, many women, they're like, oh, well, I didn't know I could do that. I, oh, I didn't know that I had a choice. Oh, well, my doctor just said I had to show up. And right now, my always at my heart is for women having vaginal birth after cesarean with a VBAC. We have women who are like, my doctor won't do an induction. 
my doctor will do an induction. They say, I have to have my baby by 40 weeks. I have to have my baby by 41 weeks. I have to have an induction at 39 weeks. And when you start talking to them, they can't navigate how to tell their doctor no, because they're afraid they'll have loss of care. They're afraid that something will go wrong. They're afraid that something else will, that someone will consider them a bad mother or that a choice that they make could reflect badly. And, you know, those things are hugely impactful. And if we gave those choices back to women, if we informed them of what they could and couldn't do in a way that was more about not can and can't, but more about choice and informed, you know, like just having the conversation and then saying, okay, what are you most comfortable with? What are you not comfortable with? Then more women would agree to medical care or agree to medical providers doing certain things in a way that actually made them come out of birth positively. We have a huge rise in things like postpartum depression, anxiety, trauma, you know, more damage being done to our bodies and, you know, cesareans are through the roof. We have all these things going on. Why is that? It's because women are completely out of control of their own care. And then we actually look back and we go, well, why, how did this happen? And women look at their providers and they're like, well, I just agreed to everything I was told to do. Do you feel like that is shifting in terms of women being more empowered in many ways and um, looking for more of their voice? Or do you feel like it's going to take something to wake up? I feel like there are small shifts that give you a lot of hope, but the slightest change in an administration can, can throw that right back into a different thing. A bad outcome in a hospital situation can change something in a heartbeat to where they're like, nope, nope, we can't do that anymore. Um, I feel like there are some providers who are coming out of, you know, their training programs who are very, very on board and then they're hitting brick walls when they get into a facility or they're, you know, they're in a place where they're like, yeah, let's do this. Let's talk about these things and let's really have a better, you know, conversation with women about their own care. And when you find those people, like right now, <laughs> I'm, I'm, been a part of a couple of conversations in the last couple of weeks where people are like, oh, well, this doctor does this and this doctor does that, or this CNM does this, or this CNM does that. But it's few and far between and everybody's competing to get in the door with those particular providers because of it. And so at the same time, we have hospitals here in the Seattle area that are now doing, you know, water births in the hospital or water labors in the hospital. But we only have one that will actually allow you to give birth underwater because they're still testing test that theory. <laughs> but so it feels like, you know, uh, some of the hospitals have gotten these big, huge water tubs where moms can really get more comfortable in labor and they're really on board with that. And then there's other hospitals where there's nothing like that in the room for whatever reason, um, facility preference or protocols or lack of space even. And so it feels like in some directions we go good and then in other directions we kind of back up. Mm -hmm. And I really feel like ultimately part of the conversations that midwives can have is if your choice is between a highly interventive risk set like, or a highly uninterventive risk set, part of our conversation is that we can look at you and say, okay, here's some things we can do to reduce risks while giving you more choices. And I really feel like that's where I see a huge difference is in facilities where either a very caring doctor has slowly but surely really made a change in how the hospital is performing. Um, or I see a place where CNMs are active and they're doing the majority of the low risk births. I was coming into practice at a point where it was like, oh, hello, I'm, I'm it. This is nice. Yay. My husband was like, yay, this is a great opportunity. And I was like, there's no other people to back me up. Um, so I've had to build some other relationships to, to back up. But it was also, there's midwives out there who have thriving birth centers um, to where there's multiple midwives in a practice and they have, you know, they, they take call from each other and they do backup for each other. And when you're in a solo practice, you actually have to reach out to other midwives and say, hi, 
would you mind covering my call for me when I have an emergency or something come up or pay another midwife to come in and, and babysit your clients, which is a horrible way to put it, but it's what we say. Um, so it's like when you don't actually have anyone who's going into dates or they're not actually actively labor sitting or watching for one of your clients, it's, it's more like they're just basically sitting on your files and going, well, I'll, I'll be here if you need me. Um, and so there is that, that other aspect of it where it feels more lonely sometimes where you don't have the conversations that, you know, you're having to reach out and make relationships. And I think that for midwives who actually have multiple midwife practices, it can change over time. Like, you know, you either develop stronger relationships or you realize that maybe the working relationship doesn't really work the way that you thought it was going to. So those things can change. And at the same time, you in the meantime, you really have a, a more stable structure for people who are on call and you get some sleep at night knowing that you occasionally get a day off. When you're a midwife who is a solo practice, you have to be much more careful. Um, I don't take as many clients as maybe other practices do. Um, I have to be a little bit more picky about risk factors and talking to my clients and being like, okay, these are things we need to keep in mind. Um, I have to build those relationships we talked about to bring in other midwives from other areas. And sometimes it's, I can't find someone to watch something. So I have to miss that thing. And when I take a vacation, um, it means that I can't have anybody do because I'm a solo practice. And if I don't have a backup, then I'm not going to do something where I'm putting my clients in the position of not having a midwife. So when people think of midwives, they think we have this really cute nine-month job. But what we really have is a nine-month job that we can do from anywhere, on the phone, email, text, really be involved with our clients in person. And then we have this five-week period where we are on-call solid the entire time. And sometimes that even extends to a six- or seven-week period when you have a newborn that's particularly interesting <laughs> and or a breastfeeding relationship that's really not working. So it does make you stop and think when my daughter was getting married, mm-hmm. it changed how I did things. When I had to leave town, it changed how I did things. I took a whole month off because I couldn't just take off a week because then somebody's due dates are going to overlap with somebody else. So I took a whole month off to get two weeks off. <laughs> and so those are things my husband really finds fascinating with trying to plan a vacation because he's like, can we go somewhere in? No, no, we can't. Sorry. Um, you have to book in nine months ahead of time, honey. He's <laughs> <laughs> not fond of. So now if we talk about it from the person, the client, as you call them, the family's point of view, what are some of the advantages? I had a client not long ago who I was like, I know that you're used to getting, you know, more care you know, that you're used to seeing your providers more often or anything. And we talked about that. And she looks at me and she goes, no. She goes, I'm used to going in for 15 minutes doing, you know, quick check my pee and then do the blood pressure. And then they would look at the baby. They would listen to the baby. And then I would be out. She goes, this is the most care I've ever had in a pregnancy. And this was her fourth baby. Mm-hmm. And that was really refreshing for me to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, and... For the client's perspective, oftentimes, uh, for me personally, I drive to my clients. They don't drive to me. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have three children and you would like a day off and want to come out to my office, you're more than welcome to. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not something where um, I most of the time I just go to them. So for my clients, they're not having to arrange busy schedules. They're not having to arrange busy, you know, babysitters. They're not having to arrange those things. And the same is true when you have a home birth because you're not having to think about all of the things that you have to pack or take or arrange for your other children. You're in the home, so it's all already there. You know where your refrigerator is. You know whether or not you've got food in it. You know whether or not your you know laundry is done. And in all those situations, for the client, it actually makes them feel more confident, com- comfortable, and in their own space mm-hmm. for me to do those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Uh, You guys, you all know that I did it for many years. (laughs) And that aspect of being and and how I speak of the home as being the sanctuary. And I realize that it isn't thought of in that by unanimously. Not everybody in the world thinks of it that way. But still, to be in your space when it comes time for your act of giving birth, 
you're not asking me how that what you need to do because you're in your space and you're doing your work. And this past year, when we have this, you know, pandemic mm-hmm. situation that then shoves everyone back home and they're having to relearn their own relationships, what it also did was is that everyone started going wait a minute, do I want to take myself and my brand new baby into a hospital? Will I have the support that I need? Will my, you know, partner be able to stay with me? Um, You know, can my husband come in? Can my kids be at my birth? And the answer was generally no. You know, can my husband even go to my ultrasound? And it was those things that when people started coming back out of hospitals this year into home birth, that was a huge concern of theirs. And it was having these conversations about, well, no, this is your home which means I'm only bringing me and my assistant or another midwife into your space. And we actually got to have those conversations about what it felt like to be safe in your own space and not to have to increase those risks and not have to go to a doctor's office every single month. And it was really, I think for a lot of women, it was very reassuring um, that they weren't having to go into medical facilities and that they knew that their mother, their spouse, their, their family could be there at the birth and no one was going to tell them their children couldn't be there. Um, I had some really beautiful family births this past year Mm. with, you know, all the children lined up. I have a great photograph of every single one of them lined up and it was really cute as the mom gave birth. It was really adorable. Mm -hmm. Um, and they were so excited to be a part of that. Yeah. It's a family. It, it, it's a family. This is a a family thing. Now, not everybody out there may think of it that way. And and I've had people that quite frankly were going, "Ooh, like give birth at home? Like it, like there's just something about uh, the the idea that it's just like a war scene or so I I don't know. I don't know what they yes. have in their mind that that it just is it's, a, it's an interesting thing, but so can you tell us uh, do you have some it sounds to me like you judge just did tell us a kind of a favorite birth experience of having the children all lined up how many were there by the um, way so there were three children but there was also um the the mother's sibling was there and she's also expecting oh, so the photograph looks like three kids and then her little sister who's also expecting and it was just like they looked like a little store doorsteps it was gorgeous <laughs> um and and it was just a beautiful, beautiful moment. Mm-hmm. And this whole family was so involved with the birth. And mm-hmm. her, they were just really involved. And it was lovely because you see those kinds of relationships. I think that sometimes that's what people forget about birth is that it's about relationship. It's, you know, there's a way that this baby got here. And this helps to build on that. It helps to build your faith in yourself when you give birth mm-hmm. to a baby. Mm-hmm. And it helps to build your, your faith in your ability to do things. Because I know that, you know... It's like, I may not ever climb Mount Everest, but, you know, giving birth was like, uh, yeah, that was, that was tough. It was hard and I did it Mm -hmm. and I've done it medicated and unmedicated and both times were tough and hard and I'd had a surgery and that was hard. And at the same time, it's like, it was parenting and sometimes parenting is a breeze and it's all easy and beautiful and it's gorgeous. And then other times it's hard and you have to find a way through and there's, um, there's a moment at a recent birth that I was at where mom was pushing. It was a very intense sensation. It was very something she was like trying to figure out how to do this. And I looked at her and I said, at some point, you're going to have to decide that it's okay to push through this and just have your baby. And in that moment, this look came over her face like, oh, only I can do this. And everything changed from that moment. The baby was born like less than 10 minutes later. But before then it was kind of like she was waiting for somebody to tell her something or she was waiting for something. And all of a sudden it was like this decision-making process where she was like, Oh, I have to do this. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that is so valuable in women's lives. Indeed. And then what is your experience of the babies? You know, of the baby's experience, because we are talking a lot of this is focusing on mom and mom's experience and and the siblings, because how does that change a sibling? I chose every one of my children have been at a birth. I chose that. I chose that. I'm thankful for that choice. But what do you, what do you, what is one of your favorite baby experiences, if you would? So I have a lot of parents who are like, they're expecting their babies to come out and cry or to, to be yelling, or to look like this, you know, just a mess or something. And there was one of my babies that was born that literally comes out, blinks twice, and just looks around the room like, 
I'm here. Hi. <laughs> and it was like, in that moment, you're just like, you're looking at the baby and the baby's like, I'm good. What's up? You know, and then you've had other, I've had other births where the babies take a second and they almost look like they're, they're kind of downloading. Like, I'm almost here. Give me a second. And then they're just suddenly fully present. And it is amazing to watch a baby go from quiet and eyes closed and into the world and just suddenly everything comes alive on them. And they take that deep breath and they yell or, you know, or anything like that. But one of my... One of my really strongest things I love to do is when a baby's about two hours old, we usually do what we call a newborn exam. And sometimes we do them a bit earlier or a bit later. And when we do that newborn exam, we are literally checking them from head to toe. We're looking in their eyes, we're looking in their nose, we're looking at their toes. And oftentimes I will lay the baby on its side, kind of warmly cuddled up, and I'm talking to the baby the whole time. And I have kind of a chipper fun voice. <laughs> and when I'm talking to the babies, it's always, okay, you're here. Hi, welcome. And I'm talking to them very calmly. And I'm like, yeah, you look at this. You've got five toes. And, you know, I'm look, you've got this great reflex. Look, you can do this thing. And it's a subtle way of educating to the parents to the wonder of their baby. This baby came here fully ready to do all of these things. And if you ever put a baby down, it will show you how well it can crawl, even at a day old. Mm-hmm. But uh, so don't ever put a baby down on the side of the bed and think you can go to the bathroom. You'll find out that the way that they crawl is you'll hear thunk. Um, but it was really a beautiful thing to just sit there and allow that to unfold with the baby, but really do it in a calm, loving way. They're, they're not under a warmer. They're not under lights. They're not under any of those things. And even the babies who have a bit of a difficulty at birth where we have to do a little something to help them breathe, like we're stimulating, we can do that in a way where we're doing human touch and we're talking to them and their mom talks to them. And when you do that newborn exam, that's just more integration into this idea that the people around them love them and touch them and want to help them to not be, you know, just, you're not flipping an egg in a frying pan. You're literally holding this baby gently to do these measurements and trying to encourage them not to cry and really trying to make them feel more comfortable with being here. And I usually tell everybody the second night after your baby is born, um, the first night they're kind of like, wow, that was a big trip. It's been a big day. And some of them want to tell you their story longer than others. They will cry and I'll be like, I don't know what just happened. It got really cold. Somebody squished my head. But the first night, babies kind of sleep and they're kind of like, okay, that was big. And they nap for five or six hours. And the second night, it is as if they've discovered everything. There is sound. There is light. It's not orange flavored from through the wall of the uterus. It is real bright light and it is noise and things are loud and things are quiet and Sometimes things are cold and when you wet yourself, it's worse. And oh my gosh, I've never had to poop before. What is that? You know, why do my intestines feel this way? What is this weird feeling? The, you know, why do I feel really strange? Oh, that's hunger. Why, why is nobody feeding me? Why is feeding so hard? Why is, you know, like all of these, they, they've never felt any of that. So the second night, I'm always like, it's okay if your baby acts a little bit like they, all of the switches have been flipped. Because they have. And that's really hard on them. <laughs> it really is. They've never felt gravity before. Mm-hmm. Not in the way they're feeling it now. Mm-hmm. And before, when they were in the womb, if they wanted to bring their, their fingers to their face, they did. Mm-hmm. And, you know, now suddenly they're out here and they can't even find their fingers. They're somewhere way far away. <laughs> and and that's, I think that's my beautiful things about babies is in the first 24 hours, they go from completely dependent, you know, dolphin mammals to being hand-held, living, breathing human beings. Mm. They change their heart, their liver, their lungs. They switch all of these things on. And then they're looking at you like, hi, I'm here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how do you see the future of midwifery changing? Um, or let's say, how do you see birth changing in our future? You could describe the idea. You can describe how, what it is that a call to action, if you would. What would get us there? I feel like more women 
have access to more ideas and information than they've ever had access to. And that allows women who want to make those choices to sometimes go and find them even when they're not in orthodox ways. Um, We like to think of ourselves as rule followers and people who do the legal things and but at the same time the way that midwifery came back about because midwifery's always existed you know Mm -hmm. if the first profession was motherhood the second profession was definitely midwifery um you know um and we are in a place where every time society tries to lock that down and make it to where only one type of profession or only doctors or only midwives or They try to lock all of that down. Eventually, women start to push back on that and go, wait a minute, this is still, you know, I always liken it to the idea that men have like, not in my house is the sports, you know, the the sports thing, you know, it's like, this is not in my house. And it's like, I, I like that. It's that idea that women have that this is this is my body, this is my baby. And if anyone has the right to make decisions about it. It's me from the perspective of there is no one in this world that's going to fight as hard for my baby as, as I am. And I think that that's really where I see the change coming is that for a while there, I feel like we were doing a lot of things to professionalize midwives. We were doing a lot of things to set legal parameters and we kept trying to put midwifery into a place where it would fit into a system that Realistically speaking, I feel like women are looking around and going, um, I, I don't want that system. And I feel like midwifery is having to step up to the plate and decide who it wants to be. It's like we're in adolescence as a profession and we have to decide who we want to be as grown-ups. Do we want to be integrated into a, a an obstetric care system or do we want to be outside of the obstetric care system and be our own autonomous providers? So what I'm really seeing with women is that Whenever midwifery starts to let them down, then women become autonomous providers on their own. They make choices that are outside of the system. And I feel like ultimately there will always be women giving birth who are making choices that not everyone would agree with, but that are having happy, healthy births outside of all of these systems. And I think that ultimately that's where... That's where the growth lies, is when midwives stand up and say, I'm, I'm really not willing to compromise the health, safety, and welfare of mothers and babies. And as with anything else that has a pendulum, it swings. And where would I really love to see it? I would love to see it as midwifery, as something where when women want midwives, that they can find midwives at any level of care intervention or, or compassion or wherever it is that they want to be at and be able to look at midwives and go, okay, I have this choice, this vast smorgasbord of, of from here to there, from completely non-interventive to completely scheduled or whatever, you know, those things are and allow women to really be able to access all of those choices without us on the other end as professionals going, well, you know, if you did that, it would be all wrong. And I feel like that's the part we're missing is that women have the right to, to make choices that you wouldn't make. Mm-hmm. I would never own a trampoline, but other people own trampolines. Mm. True that. And, and, and I think that that's something where we have to find a way to say, okay, you want a trampoline? This is how you do that. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, you, you know, that, that's why everybody's homeowner's insurance is more expensive when you buy a trampoline and it goes up, you know, and I feel like that's okay. If you're paying for a premium service, it's okay to pay for a premium service. But I I do feel like midwives are ultimately the premium service. We are at your service. We are there to provide you with information. And if we could somehow go back to the idea that we are all trying to serve women to have happy, healthy babies and happy, healthy, healthy mothers. Then I think that I think it's just time we started treating women like they were adults. Mm. And clearly I've spoken in my initial episode and the people are going to hear it all throughout here. America's not doing a very good job of this. And, and so what uh, insight do you think? Why? What? What are the differences that you know of from different people in different countries, or different midwives, or, or just different? What's done different? 
you know, why is it that we have we just have such poor results and such we pay we pay more for the, getting less all the time? Why is that? I think a lot of it goes back to um, I will say flat out that I'm a little bit fluffy. I'm not like massively overweight, but I am not a small person either. Um, so I am kind of somewhere in what I would call the standard American human. Um, and, (laughs) and it's like, so if I'm a standard American human and I'm out here in the world, when I go in, I am looked at as like a, a situation. I am looked at as all the observations automatically come up into a computer with, I should be having this medical problem or that medical problem or this risk or that risk. And then we're put into liability categories and then we react to clients as liability categories. We don't react to them as if they're human beings. So why are, where are we getting it wrong is by not looking at the person in front of us. And when we look at somebody and we say, well, you know, your, your BMI is a 29 or your BMI is a 31. We, we need to, you need to lose weight. We're not actually asking the person, why do you feel that is? What do you feel like you could integrate differently? What can I help you with? We as medical society or we as a society don't trust individuals. We don't think we're trustworthy and we don't look at people, you know, we test every single woman in Washington for syphilis as if she's a walking time bomb for syphilis. Now, do we have a problem in in the United States with a rising syphilis population? We do. And we should be testing people. It has a lot of congenital issues. But is it really wrong to just have that conversation? Do you feel like you're at risk for this? And do you feel like, um, you know, would you be willing to consent to this? Because these are all of the things that could go wrong. And instead we go, well, we don't care. We passed a law. Everyone has to do it. And it, we don't trust individuals to even be a part of their own health care. And that's where we're going wrong. Because when we don't trust, we're not actually giving anyone the right to access their own health care. And with, especially when you look at what's going on in, right now in the United States, there's big talks about you know, black maternal mortality, which is actually reflective of all of maternal mortality being bad. It's just a very small composite set of numbers that we can look at and go, oh yeah, those are really bad. Um, But when we look at that, it's because of the fact that we're not treating those women as if they were individual women standing in front of you and and what is going on with your care. We're, We're looking at them as a base of risk factors and then we're like, well, we can't help you because you're a base of risk factors. And if we actually took in each individual woman, and this is what I think is profound in, in home birth midwifery care and CPM documentation, what it showed was is that when you give holistic care to women um, and you actually look at them not based on whether or not they're Mediterranean, they're black, they're white, or you know Indian or anything else, if you look at them as women and then you talk to them about their nutrition, their health, their individual risk factors, and actually watch them clinically, they always have better outcomes as a group. And it's not always that you're going to have the perfect outcome for one individual, but the better outcomes happen because you're paying attention. And when we've streamlined things so much and we don't trust people, then we're actually taking out all of the factors that improve quality of care. Wow. So... Well, let's talk just a little bit. How are they going to find you? This has been terrific. How where are they going to find you? How do you want to hook up with these people? Um, so if you, I have a Facebook page for Exhale Birth Services. I literally have a Google page that's like a Google business for Exhale, um, and I uh, have uh, and I'm on Nextdoor. I've, I've got all these places, but my website is actually. Um, exhalebirthservices.com and it is birth and it is exhale like breathing out and then services because I do a variety of things and including midwifery I'm also a doula for some women and I do childbirth education and spinning babies parent educator so um, those are the things I also rent birth tubs which is always fun because people come to me and this new thing that's out now is I can actually do gender checks for babies and draw blood and get find out if it's a boy or a girl earlier like eight weeks that's been total fun because I've gotten to meet a lot of new people and introduce them into midwifery care. They've never heard of a midwife. So then they're like, how does that work exactly? And you get to talk to them and really introduce them to the idea. It's been fun. That's great. But, yeah. Is there any document that you would like to make available to people today? 
that I would be posting as a resource? Um, I can probably send you over a few things that would be fantastic for, for moms. Um, there's a, yeah, there's a few things I'll think of, um, that, that I could probably post. I don't know what they would be though. So (laughs) we'll have to think of that. Well, if there, you know, if, if in your, if in your thinking, there's a resource that you really feel would speak to the messages that you are, are, are finding to be so important to you then I want to have that accessible to people too. So Well, it's really right now, pelvic floor therapy is really big. And one of the local um, pelvic floor therapists down in Seattle actually just posted a checklist for postpartum, you know, for for anybody who's had a baby or even if not, mm-hmm. um, pelvic floor therapy. Um, sometimes you can even do it during pregnancy and it helps to improve um, everything to do with your body after you've had babies. And I feel like that was an important document. So many women are having repairs done or, you know, 25 years later, they're, they're like, why aren't things quite where they used to be? And I, I, I think I will send you that checklist because that has That's been a great. really big asset to many of my clients going, what can I do to help things feel a little bit more like they used to feel? That's great. Well, I really, really appreciate you being here. I appreciate you talking about all the services that you do. Maybe there's people out there that are, want that gender check. Maybe they're needing a, a birth tub. Maybe they're just they're just enamored with you as as we are here. And what we need what we didn't say is where you're actually physically located. Now, I know you do go to people's houses, but physically you're the most local midwife and that's why I started with you. So to tell them where you are located. Well, I'm only the most local midwife because my favorite midwife retired. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'm actually, I, I live in Carnation, and what I tell everybody is I serve the east side corridor. So I go anywhere east of 405 up to like Lake Stevens, Sultan, and that area. I go out to Cleallum, out I-90 corridor, and then I go down to Kent. And I try to stay out here because there's so few midwives servicing this area. And there's so many midwives that are in Seattle or birth centers that are in Seattle, but there's very little out here for our women. And my biggest thing is always community first. And that is something else I should say. Um, Since COVID began happening, we have had a lot of people in our community who have either um, needed pregnancy tests or wanted an early ultrasound or have had previous losses. And I was offering free to the community that first meeting to sit down with them and be like, okay, do we need to run blood work on you? Do we need to get you into an ultrasound to make sure everything is okay? Do you need a pregnancy test? And we were able to do most of that without having a situation where I was having to actually do contact. It was, it was able to be contactless pregnancy tests. Um, and I feel like my community, Carnation is my community. And having moved here a year and a half ago, I try really hard to stay within the area. Like when I go shopping, I go to Wild Iris. <laughs> when I buy things like, you know, vegetables, I try to go to the farmer's market and when it's open. Um, so I feel like offering community services is huge. And I do want the, the people here at Fall City Carnation, um, you know, Duval, to know that there's someone who lives in their community and who's five minutes down the road. So if you need something... You know, even if you just got home from your hospital birth and, you know, you really are having problems a lot with breastfeeding, give me a call. Great. Great. Thanks again. What a, what a, what a fun time. It's so good. I mean, this is my first time sitting down at a microphone with somebody and I couldn't think of anyone better to do it with. You've made it so much fun and I'm so excited for you and the and having you in our area as a midwife, uh, because you know what, she gets a lot of the mommies I used to have. <laughs> they all mention that they're all like, "I had Roxanne, and she's not doing this yeah, anymore." But uh, still, still <laughs> in love with the in love with local, and I and I know they're in great hands with you. So thanks again, Shannon. You take care. All right. Thanks for having me. <laughs>